what I tell them at the start of the course is that your job is to think through Buddhist doctrine, to think like a Buddhist as much as you can. Hello, and welcome to this episode of The Circled Square, the podcast where we talk about teaching Buddhist studies in higher education. I'm Sarah Richardson, and I teach at the University of Toronto. In this episode, I sat down with Dr. Todd Lewis. He's a distinguished professor of arts and humanities and a professor of world religions at the College of the Holy Cross in Worcester, Massachusetts. Dr. Lewis has had a long and distinguished career, and he's particularly interested in teaching his students about Buddhism in a social context, making sure that they understand that Buddhism was not just the purview of a specialist group like monks and nuns, but is formed by and in many communities. He has a real interest in art and ritual and finds really innovative ways of sharing those with students. In this podcast, we talk about diagrams and films and all manner of ways he's found to make this subject alive. Please enjoy. Um, hello, Professor Lewis. Thanks so much for being here. It's my pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. And I'm looking forward to talking to an art historian. <laughs> well, um, we wanted to talk today about your teaching. So as part of our research for this interview, we looked at your recent course syllabus um, on your Intro to Buddhism course that you're just finishing teaching from this fall 2020. Okay. So fall 2020, of course, was an unusual term for many of us. I wanted to ask you first how your Intro to Buddhism course this past term changed from previous incarnations. Yeah, well, Holy Cross decided to be all remote. So it meant students are... Um scattered all over the country and all over the world, in fact. Uh, I have four Chinese students in that class who are scattered over China, Xi'an, Beijing, Shanghai. Um, and, and, and I have 48 students. It's a popular class at Holy Cross. And, um, and we had to, and I was teaching the same course in the spring. So what, what I decided to do a couple of years ago was to do my class, organize my class as a with a two-hour lecture once a week, a plenary lecture, and then have small breakout discussion groups later in the week. And so what that meant was that I recorded my lectures on a uh, recording platform and then um, had students view them when they wanted to or when they could, mm. and then had live discussion sections via Zoom for groups of 15 to 18 students. Okay. And a popular class means how many students exactly? Yeah. Um, in the spring, I had almost 50. I think I had 50 in the spring and 48 this semester. Okay. Um, so uh, I teach at a Jesuit Catholic college with a student population of um, about 2,800. So um, my course satisfies a cross-cultural studies core requirement, but um, I get a lot of students who are sort of disaffected Catholics <laughs> who, um, who are interested in something else or curious, you know, minds. And um, Holy Cross is a modern liberal arts college. Our, half of our students are Catholic. But um, it's not in any way uh, uh, the religion requirement is just take a religion course, <clears throat> including my Buddhism course. Mm. So okay. there's no um, there's no difficult um, assignment in taking it. I sent you the screen. I sent you the screen, and I tell my students 
That's the most important screen of the semester. Okay, you're going to need to describe it and explain it. We can put it on the website, but so it's, first of all, it's a graphic that you've produced, I guess? Yes. This, this is basically an explanation of the Eightfold Path, and it's organized according to the um, schema of the great Sri Lankan uh, scholar Buddha Gosha, who divides the path to nirvana in terms of three stages. One is morality. The second is meditation. And the third is prajna. And, and the perfection of prajna equals nirvana or enlightenment realization. And so the Eightfold Path can be organized in this way, I think, fruitfully. And it more or less conforms to what other Buddhist thinkers, including Mahayana scholars, such as Shantideva, uh, described in slightly different language, Mahayana with the Paramitas, but still... The perfection of prajna is the end of the Buddhist path with the realization of nirvana. That's true. Right. And then in this yellow diagram you've got, so you've got them morality, meditation, prajna aligned with elements from the Eightfold Path. Yes. But but below that, this percentage of population line, what does that mean? Okay. So so now we get to the bell curve. <laughs> so, so, and and I, I've written about, I think, the bell curve is essential for studying all religions. There are really dedicated followers who may become monks and nuns in the case of Buddhism. And there are people who barely show up or don't show up or who don't even believe the stuff unless they're pressed on the other tail of that. And then you have people in the middle and every religion in every place can maybe be filled out in terms of the way these are specifically um, uh, fulfilled. And the bell curve may be shaped differently for different places in the Buddhist world or different religions. It's it's such a basic idea, but it's it's also um, very essential uh, sociological imagination. You have to, you can't essentialize Buddhism as any part of that bell curve. And so, what's at the bottom of that of that illustration is that ninety five percent of Buddhists are really uh, concerned with the morality. That is, of being good people and avoiding making bad karma and then making merit so that in the future of this life and in future lifetimes, you improve your position eventually to be able to have the capacity to practice meditation and and realize the fruits of meditation. Mm-hmm. Now, it is true. And that meditation that modern, number is small still, though, 4.99% you've got there. Yeah. And so that's, and it is true that in modern times, meditation has been democratized across the Buddhist world. Uh, and so that there, there may be more people who, who do meditation and, and householders for that engage in meditation. But the key point here and the takeaway is that 95% of Buddhists it's not hard to understand them. It is basically be a good person. That is the Dharma. And you, you follow the five precepts and you are generous in supporting the Sangha and you donate to charities and you do rituals because that's the way you make karma. That's where you make merit. And so in some ways, Buddhism is not hard. It's not mysterious. It is true that the Dharma has taken a long, many, many routes and many explanations, many schools, Nargarjuna, consciousness only, Tantra, 
you know, the six yogas of Naropa, on and on it goes. And that's for the 5% of the people who are engaged on that level of intensity. But understanding typical Buddhists, it's not hard. It is right. not hard. Right. So and and so then also for ninety five percent of the population, they're really only feeling responsible to the first three parts of the path: right speech, right action, right livelihood. Uh, they respect the rest, and they are responsible to support those who can go further. And that's the beautiful. I you know this is another sociological idea. All social life is based on exchange, and so the householders are expected to and earn merit for supporting the virtuosos among them. And that within this diagram also is the fact that not all monks are virtuoso meditators. In fact, at times, you know, if you follow the work of Gregory Chopin in this, you wonder how many, <laughs> how low the number of really serious practicing spiritualists, spiritual monks there were, because they were also involved in managing the, um, the uh, monastic grounds the uh, warehouses where they stored things for merchants and all kinds of other activities that fully developed Indian monastic Buddhism undertook. Uh, so, yeah. yeah. So that, that's um, that's what I think I can when I explain that that diagram. Yeah. Yeah. Very cool. And so this diagram, how does it support your teaching? Like how you said you use this in classes. So how do you use this in classes, and how does it support your teaching with students. Okay, so I want to I want to provide a context for the different teachings that are part of the dharma. I want to provide a social context so that Buddhism doesn't just float out in the in our imaginations as some something that exists without being grounded in particular places and times. And I'm 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 very confident that in almost every place in Buddhist history as well as today that this pattern obtains. Now, in Tibet, we had 20% of men were monks, uh, but they even had more diversity in the monastery such, with figures such as the Dubdas, the, uh, the warrior monks who were like the policemen in these huge monasteries that existed. And so that's a bit of an outlier in terms of the size of the Sangha. But, uh, and I wish we could go back and do censuses and figure out you know, how many monks that really were and percentage-wise. But uh, um, that's a guess, but I think it's pretty accurate. Yeah. So this is this is fascinating. This res this resonates with me a lot. Thank you. Um, and this is something kind of a theme in your work. You've been publishing and talking about this idea for a long time that we need to really study the humanity of Buddhists, not the selected experiences of just a few, like of a tiny slice of the virtuosic Buddhist practitioners. Good. So that's exactly right. Yeah. So th what does what's required to do that? Like, what do you think, what focus do we need to have differently in our courses to make sure our students are being exposed to what you're calling the humanity of Buddhists? Yeah. So let me also say that, you know, I try to make students aware of what, how, what end of the bell curve they're in, in terms of global um, literacy, intellectual capability, wealth and freedom to study. So that, you know, and I, I acknowledge to them that, you know, we're not just going to spend 5% of the course time on Buddhist, um, uh, the, the, the ways that, that, uh, that Buddhists have philosophized. 
that's not what we're going to do. We're going to spend much more time with that. So we're going to disproportionately study the intellectuals and the philosophers. So I'm not downgrading that. I'm not, I'm not neglecting that. Um, but I am trying to have them read and describe and see rituals. And I want them to see how uh, Buddhism is lived in different times and places. And it is through, Sarah, mm -hmm. the art yeah. of Buddhism that you can show this. This is prime evidence. I agree. <laughs> uh, I mean, I don't know if you've toured Sri Lanka very much. I have you not. being a Himalayan no. person. No, India, but, Nepal, <laughs> Tibet, but no Sri Lanka yet. But Sri Lankan uh, temple paintings, monastery paintings, are an incredibly rich source of material uh, showing ritual practices. Um, and so it's it's there on the walls, as well as, you know, you can go and, 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 and document these rituals. And the, the tradition I spent most of my research life uh, working on, which is very close to Tibet, but it's so different. Uh, they do some of the same rituals. Newar. The Newar yeah. never had this scholastic uh, thing that the Tibetans had. Tibetans are outliers in this, really. I mean, the, the energy and the, the, the human manpower that went into translating and commenting on and commenting on the comments on, et cetera, et cetera, in Tibet is extraordinary. Um, and so in some ways, Tibet is, is a bit uh, atypical, I think, um, in, in contemporary terms and in traditional terms. But, you know, to, just to get back to the, the original question, so you need, to, you need to show students Buddhists doing rituals. You need to show them gathering on full moon days and circumambulating stupas by the tens of thousands yeah. today. And to well show as, them, what do you do? What do you do to show them? You mean show them videos? Like how do you bring I this? All these videos. Yeah. yeah, that's why. That's why to me, it was an essential pedagogic um, uh, activity for me over the past thirty years. And I even started. I, I got Smithsonian support when I was a grad student in Nepal, and they sent me cameramen and um, Airflex uh, cameras uh, and to shoot sixteen millimeter film as well and uh, you know now it's so much more fluid and easy to i mean with cell phone you can take reasonable video kind of yeah uh, i mean you can find on youtube sometimes too like a yeah pilgrim video from last week of somebody circumambulating yeah that's right and and so you know the youtube and uh, google images are like this the old uh, slide table <laughs> uh, and video deck you used to be able to draw from so you know, it needs to be curated to some extent uh, because there's a lot of <clears throat> there's a lot of uh, silliness and imprecision out in what's out there. But you know, people in Asia are proud of their traditions, so they're docu they're doing the documentary work for us in ways. You know, it's yeah, amazing. Yeah, and so in this introduction to Buddhism course that I will go back to talking about soon, you have them write a Buddhist art encounter paper. So I'm really curious about that because I've got this. Yeah, I totally share your interest and perspective on Buddhist art as this really important lens for helping students encounter Buddhism as lived by many other people and that was inclusive. So tell me about what do you have them do in the Buddhist art encounter paper? Do you assign pieces of art to them or do they choose their own or how does that work? Yeah, um, they have to go out in the world and find it. 
It's a little bit of encouraging them to get to the Worcester Art Museum, which is one of the finest small city museums in the country. There's a, there are two galleries of Buddhist art and, you know, four or five pieces of art from Gandhara, for example. So it's, it's okay, but it, you know, I want them actually to, if they can, to go to the Met or the MFA too, even better. Uh, but, you know, to see the art in person and to, um, to well, our art historians that I at, at Holy Cross like to talk about visual literacy, you know, describe it where it fits into a larger movement and and look and sit and, and, and stay with the image. So they have to go for at least an hour. And I encourage them to go twice to because and later uh, in the semester so that um, as they learn more about Buddhism, they can get more out of the image. It tends to be later in the semester because a lot of what's up there is Mahayana and you have to get to Mahayana before you can send them out to to uh, to see the, the art itself. Yeah. And so, do you have them when they when they're in this encounter, do you have them? Like, are the instructions to just sit with it for an hour? Or do they sketch, or is there any kind of guideline? Yeah, I want them to, to do? document it, to sketch mm -hmm. if, if they if they if they feel like that. Um, yeah, they actually the I've uh, let's see. I took away you have to sketch, but I, I encourage it, and I um, encourage them to also look and think about the concept of darshan, uh, making eye contact with an image. It's a very Indic. Uh, in Buddhist uh, central part of uh, the uh, the working nature of Buddhist art. Uh, but by the way, this, this also gives me a chance to do a little bit of riffing about museums and how, and I, I also will show them usually on the day this is due or, you know, something like, I want to show them what working images actually look like, where you can't tell what's in the arms or hands because they're covered with silk um, uh, vestments and, and scarves and they have flowers draped over their heads and people are throwing rice at the images. And, and so museums um, are not the place to really understand the fullness of art, that you have to see how it works. And so I've made videos of this kind of thing as well. Uh, and it gets into, and then we can get into this. And I, I don't really want to get too sidetracked with the students about how some of these museums actually got their art. Uh, <laughs> <because> <laughs> no, that's always really fascinating. <laughs> but see, that's how we circle back to Orientalism, because this yeah. is at the end yeah. of the course. You know, how, yeah. did this, how did this get here? And, right. and I just want to plant that seed just to make them think about, you know, this is the privilege we have. Uh, and, and, and I can, I mean, in Nepal, actually, Dina Bangdell's, father wrote a did a book on the stolen art of Nepal where he had photographs of the art that was then lost or stolen and missing a whole thick coffee table book of stolen art so I want them to be aware about you know that this is also part of the legacy of colonialism and uh, orientalism right yeah and it isn't over right there's still looted art circulating on the market now. Yeah, I, I helped the uh, the South Asian curator at the Met who um, who came and was part of our exhibition, gave a lecture to return some pieces of art back to Nepal. And uh, 
that's that's something that's going to be an ongoing uh, aspect. Yeah, uh, fascinating. That's a whole other subject that would be yeah an repatriation um, conversation sometimes because a number of the pieces we showed in our exhibition last fall, uh, I actually knew all about uh, their provenance and how they came to the Virginia Museum of Fine Arts. So, so I want students to see that you know this. This is these topics are not over, and we all are part of this um, globalization and understanding. And Buddhism entails uh, these kinds of interconnectedness uh, ideas that Buddhism itself has within. Yeah, it. yeah. All right, so. You touched a little bit on this already, but let's let's circle back to this topic of Orientalism and the study of Buddhism from this very from very early on in the course. Yes. So, how do you introduce it, and why do you introduce it? So, I think the start of any religious studies course and any study of any uh, world religion should at least be a, a at the start. You sort of want to cleanse your palate, if you will. You, know? <laughs> you, you want to you want to make students aware and think about what their biases are as they enter in. I think it's a good thing for them to think about this. Um, and so I, I have two kinds of categories of Orientalism that I've developed as I, I've taught over the years. Uh, one is the critical Orientalism that, um, that dismisses or derogates or uh, doesn't take seriously uh, the, the religious ideas or the religious exemplars in that tradition. And so there's there's a long tradition of depicting Asian sages uh, as unserious men on hip mountaintops where people, this is the New Yorker cartoon sort of thing, where people go up and ask them questions and they turn out to be, you know, frauds or charlatans or not serious in their being gurus and being leaders of spiritual, the Buddhist spiritual, Hindu spiritual uh, tradition. And so I want them to just to see how all the ways that they may have seen Buddhism dismissed as, as something that's flaky or not, not to be taken seriously. Yeah. So that's the dismissive side of Orientalism. But there also is this hyper-idealizing of Buddhism, uh, in which Buddhism is sort of accepted uncritically. It's, um, you know, it's sort of the Bob Thurman approach to Tibet. Everything was always beautiful all the time in every way. And don't say anything bad about Tibet. Um, and, you know, in fact, there's always a bell curve. Back to the bell curve. There's always a bell curve. And there are, there are exemplary people and there are real terrible people. And there's everyone in between. And, um, and so, it's, so I want them to not take uh, the hyper-idealized presentation of Buddhism too, uh, and, to, and to come in, in other words, to reset to being open-minded. And so I find that bringing that up, but I also want to circle around by the end of the course to come back to these issues as I just illustrated with art, but also in other ways. I mean, when you, when you talk about Buddhism today, I mean, the whole tradition almost everywhere in Asia was completely disrupted. Right. Uh, the economic systems that the Buddhism depended on were interrupted or destroyed by colonialism. Um, there were all kinds of ideological setbacks just being taken over by Europeans. And so much of Buddhism had to be rebuilt from the 19th century onward. So I want them to see how that rebuilding 
the so-called Protestant Buddhism that comes out of Sri Lanka and, you know, is passed to other places, that um, that it is, so here we are again, right in this moment, still dealing with some of the the distortions and the misconceptions and the stereotypes that Westerners also brought uh, to Buddhism. So that's in a way that, and yeah. it's such it's it's so hard because it's still shifting too, right? I mean, the developments that 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 you know, nineteenth and early twentieth century movements have given birth to are still, you know, tendrils working out They're in the still world, right? Out. With, and, um, and and you know the the question of you know who who is legitimately preaching the Dharma today, and you know there there are important questions about legitimacy and authority that uh, you know. Asian Buddhists lost a lot of their agency to control the representation of their own tradition. Mm. And um, do you mean in America or globally? I mean globally, but um, but especially in North America, I, I, in Europe, I think mm. we have people interpreting Buddhism and making authoritative statements about what the Buddha taught that are at least they there there are some problematic aspects to that. Um, and I don't really get into that. I just want students to leave the course critical and attuned to the issues that as they encounter Buddhists for the rest of their lives, they will have a have a sense of that. Yeah. And I'm wondering, since you've been teaching a while, is which of these two forms of Orientalism do you think holds greater sway now over your students? Like, do you, do you find in the classrooms that now in 2020, more of your students are coming in with a lot of this hyper idealizing of Buddhism still active in their imagination because there's such a, um, you know, there's now such a current uh, culture around like mindfulness programs on, you know, the cover of Time magazine or in public schools in many of our, in, in a lot of places in North America anyway. Um, and so do you think there's more of that hyper idealizing, or do you think that, that the students now, the younger students we have are also still affected by this um, dismissive Orientalism you called it? Well, in, in my classroom, um, I find students are very eager and that dismissive thing on Buddhism isn't a problem on Islam. Same, same set of students uh, enduring skepticism, even after an introduction an introductory course. Um, I guess what I what I'm resisting and want them to be uh, aware of are two um, are two stereotypes about Buddhism that can be uh, reinforced by Western Buddhist institutions. One is the statement that Buddhism is just a philosophy, <laughs> and there's nobody coming out of my course who's yeah. going to see that. And I love to beat on that drum as I show them, you know, how much Buddhist life. For householders is ritual, daily ritual, um, lunar calendar-based ritual, going to the monastery and all. It's, you know, at the end of it, you, I think they get a case study in how Western stereotypes of others turns out to be idiotic. But, but then Buddhism is simply uh, as a therapy or as a, as a reduced to just meditation, which you'll find in many places, um, you know, that, you know, Buddhism, the Unlike the immigrant Buddhists we have across North America now, the the Western Zen Center meditation center uh, will have 
some ritual, at least the one I go to uh, very close to my house that I send students to, they do have rituals. Uh, but it's not the same as if they're in Asia either. Uh, but I want them to be alert to um, this reduction of Buddhism to simply therapy. And um, in fact, that's what some of my students are going to get sent their take-home exam in about uh, three hours. Uh, they're going to be asked about, <laughs> you know, to describe this very situation. So we'll see how well they do. And examinations are also an assessment of how well you taught them. So uh, <laughs> I'm about to see how well I succeeded in what I just outlined. Right. And the impossible COVID classroom of teaching them online. Yes, right? it is. It is. Yeah. 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 I, well, since we went there, can I ask you a little bit about what changed, what adapted, what worked, maybe what you would do differently as you go forward online? Because you're, I'm sure, doing remote online now, like the rest of us. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, it's all online. And, um, you know, it's... In a way, um, the COVID situation for my big Buddhism class worked just fine. I have now recorded all the lectures for that class. I recorded the second half of the introductory class last, mm -hmm. last term in the spring because we had to mm -hmm. bug out yeah. and go remote. You know, they right. gave us in the like middle of March. Yeah. And, then I, I, yeah, and then I had to re record to catch up to last semester this semester. So now the whole course is there and students can watch and rewatch and do it on their own time. And so having these live discussion sections, um, I, I see some positivity in it in that, that, first of all, all the students' names are right there on the scoreboard across you. And I, so, you know, when you have 50 students, it's, it's nearly hopeless to remember names in that context. But I really find that um, I don't mind getting this quiet ones, I can, I can call them out because they're all right in front of me. And so I think it's made in some ways the classroom a little bit better that students right. don't hide. They can't right. hide as much. Right. A different kind of equalizing maybe. It does. Exactly. And especially the quiet women in class. Uh, and, you know, I, I'm sensitive about, you know, that problem anyway, and how the boys want to jump up first, always almost. But uh, I think it's been better for that. Uh, but I think, you know, in, in the long run, being present with students uh, and seeing in their eyes whether they're really getting it, it's, it's somehow it doesn't come through on, on Zoom and um, in the same way anyway. The one thing that I, I have um, gone into in the last two semesters uh, circles to one of my other important takeaways about teaching introduction to Buddhism. And that is about what is the Dharma. And mm. just hang with me for a second. Mm -hmm. So the Buddha reveals all kinds of teachings about, you know, analysis and defining reality. <clears throat> and, and, all, and, and that's the Dharma. That's the basis of philosophy and doctrinal exegesis. But the Buddha also, and this is neglected by scholars, and I, I've been reading this Encyclopedia of Buddhism that I contributed to, and it's been out about 10, 12 years now. And I'm, I'm, I've just decided to read it cover to cover, which is mm. kind of a, a strange. That's the Princeton, the Princeton Encyclopedia of Buddhism. Uh, the mm. Princeton one. It's is it? Uh, no, it was. Um, it's the two volume edited by um, by Buswell and. Uh, okay. Uh, 
it, it's a, it has a yellow yeah. cover. Anyway, okay. it's it's it was in a way the authoritative, you know, people writing about what they what they're experts in. Anyway, I see that it's not even in there. The Dharma the Buddha reveals is also in important texts and in some of the most used texts in the Buddhist world are about mantras and dharanis to protect people, to stave off illness, to keep your children alive, <clears throat> to to help make your mind clear to do other spiritual work. That is the Dharma too. In the text, I've translated a text called the Pancharaksha in its Nepalese manifestation. And the end of the Buddha gives as a compassionate action to his followers, specific mantras and dharanis to chant, to help out in this life, to help in the pragmatic problems of life. And so to me, I, and so I've, I searched through and had my Nepalese uh, um, uh, co-author, uh, Naresh Bhadracharya, we've, we've identified, you know, what you should chant if you want to what his tradition is saying, chant if you want to be safe from epidemics, because epidemics were a part of the ancient world that we're not aware of anymore. We don't think about it. One out of uh, half of the children, half of the children died before they got to wow. be five years old in most of the ancient world. Now, now when you know yeah. that, now you can understand dukkha. You can, whereas you don't get it before that. And if you've had little ones, and how can you, I can't even imagine what that dukkha is to have half of your children die before they get to be five. We fall in love with them. We, they're, they're the most precious things to us. And yet in samsara, that's what dukkha means. So of course, people wanted protection from epidemics. Of course, they wanted these contributions to make um to make the, their children uh, pass through this dangerous early period in life. And if you look at how what texts were actually used and copied, and Gina and I are hoping to do a project just to count the texts that were illustrated, I bet you that the Pancharaksha will outnumber the Prajnaparamita by five or ten to one in terms of their presence in the monasteries. So to me, that, that is another reason why that 5% is accurate. People, working texts were like working art, what mattered to people. So Yeah, right. And, and so, and you're showing your students then that it's very much, I mean, Buddhism is always wrapped up in also main, you know, helping people with the very mundane and the very practical and the very immediate and specific worldly concerns, not just not just the philosophical highest achievement. Yes. One of the great um, resources that I read as a grad student was, a, um, was an article by um, um, David Mandelbaum, who was an Indologist and taught at Berkeley for many years. And he talked about how religion always has to, has to take into account uh, both the transcendental elements and the pragmatic elements, and if you and and if you neglected if you neglect that, you're really missing something. Um, yeah, yeah. So I wanted to switch gears a little bit. We just had, like, just last week, I guess, um, the American Academy of Religion annual meeting, mm. virtually, of course. Um, and this year's program included the Buddhist Pedagogy Seminar, which uh, was initiated in 2019. Yes. And actually, it was really reading about that conversation from the 2019 meeting 
that helped us clarify along with uh, Francis Garrett here, who attended then, our kind of aims as a podcast to focus more on pedagogy. Um, so thank you for that. Oh, but, that's uh, great to know. <laughs> yeah. So, um, but you were the presider at the Buddhism Pedagogy Seminar. And there were five presentations in this session that just happened, I guess, re- anyway, recently. Um, so could you reflect a little bit on that session and what and what you see changing uh, or staying or staying the same as we collectively try to change or uh, improve our teaching? Yeah, well, it was an interesting group. You know, I I guess I'm one of the old guys in the room now most of the time. Uh, and to hear these young scholars describe, you know, what they what they want to accomplish in their intro to Buddhism class. And, you know, I mean, I'm not sure I have anything very profound to say about this, except that it was clear to me that we that the context of our teaching is a huge part of how we should teach. And to me, and we may, we were just had a follow-up board meeting yesterday afternoon uh, with the leaders of that group on, you know, what the call to papers will be for next year um, and, and, and thinking about this. Um, but, you know, I, I, I like the idea of uh, the Mahayana concept of upaya, uh, skillful means as a Buddhism professor. I think you have to really meet your students where they are and, and every institution has a slightly different culture. And, you know, it's very profound, as I said before, between liberal arts colleges with no grad students, no grad programs, and, you know, that kind of department and student body versus, you know, what you teach where I was trained as a Buddhologist at a big research university. You know, I studied at Columbia and we had, you know, I was completely unready completely unready to <laughs> teach at schools that weren't research universities. It still shocks me that I ended up at Holy Cross yeah. and I've had a very nice career here. Don't get me wrong. But, you know, I always, I never get to do advanced teaching except for the occasional Harvard graduate student who wants me on the committee and all that kind of thing. So it's it really does depend upon that. And that's a huge variable. If you don't get that right, and I had a I had a conversation with one of the the people who presented about, you know, he wanted his students to come away with um, a sort of postmodern understanding of religion. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And and I and I kind of gently wanted him to hear that, you know, I don't think that is the main problem in, that we have in this world. We have religious illiteracy as a problem, and before they 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 sort of get their perfect framed understanding of religion to me that's that's something way back upaya tells me to to get people literate and clear about you know what buddhism was and and how to understand it so you know but we have a chance to air these these assumptions and i think since um, there very rarely are many people at our institution who also teach buddhism i think our forum provides um, our AR group provides a forum so that people can um, can sort of bring out what they may be subconscious to them. Because I know my worst mistakes when I started teaching was trying to provide uh, insight that I wish I had myself when I was in their stage. And of course, most of 99.9% of my students are not like me. 
They didn't. They weren't budding intellectuals. They didn't have a passion for the subject. You know, they're not that. And so I, it took me a, a, a good few years to finally realize that this was not the most effective way to reach students. Uh, and so that's that's what the I think the the meta purpose of our AAR group. Interesting. Yeah, I can relate a lot to that. I had a delightful experience recently of rediscovering the course pack from a fir- from the very first um, like Buddhism course I took as a McGill undergrad years ago, <laughs> and you know, so it's from twenty years ago. And uh, looking at it now. I mean, it's a much richer course than I think I knew at the time, (laughs) but that doesn't mean I didn't like, I loved that course and I certainly was an attentive student, but, um, yeah, I didn't get half of it really. I mean, looking at it again, I was like, Oh, that's what he was doing. This is the thing, you know, and I, I don't know. I mean, that's, that's the problem with, um, you know, mainly research scholars descending down into the undergraduate introductory course, I mean, I, I studied with one of the most peculiar people uh, in Buddhist studies in the 20th century, a guy named Alex Wayman. And, and he, he was completely unable to connect with uh, uh, normal human beings. And his teaching was very idiosyncratic. And, you know, I mean, in a way, once you get to graduate school, you teach yourself. With some <laughs> some people. Yeah, you're supposed to do something. Yeah, yeah uh, but I, there was also a, the guy who mainly taught the undergraduates, uh, whom I TA'd for and learned a great deal about about teaching from him. Even though I still made the mistake of being a little too fancy theoretically <laughs> in, in my uh, early classes. <laughs> well, since we're there, I want to ask you. So, how did you become who you are in the in the field? When we, when did the interest in Buddhism start, or how was it study abroad program or some other venue? What? How did this uh, human from the southern United States end up studying this? Yeah, uh, that's. Uh, I, I I wanted to get out of the South, so I went to Rutgers as an undergraduate. And I was a psych major, and I was working in a lab from my sophomore year onward. And I was all ready to go on. And the, my mentor there, who was a famous psychologist, um, was expecting me to. I was already taking grad students as a senior and, and undergraduate. But there's one day I had this experience that I that I realized, as the graduate student deadlines were co- upon me, that. Uh, I was going to be working in a rat lab for the rest of my life. And and it was the rats and the monkeys. You didn't want that. <laughs> I just decided I got to have an option here. I need, I need an alternative. And so I applied to, and I'd taken enough courses to, I could have been a double major. And I if we had minors, I would have been a religion minor. But I had some wonderful teachers at Rutgers in religion and they encouraged me, and you know, I had I got like funded to go to Wisconsin Madison and to Columbia, and um, for uh, family reasons, I went to Columbia. Um, so, so that today I'd never get in any of these programs because I had no Asian languages. You know, I had to start Sanskrit and Pali right. and and sort of right. catch up. And did you start the so, languages at Columbia? Columbia that was, you started there, and yeah, 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 I did, yeah. I did. And um, and uh, because Wayman taught Tibetan in an almost incomprehensible way, I didn't do the philological full, you know, the full house of 
preparation. So I didn't do Tibetan and I didn't do Chinese and I didn't do Japanese. Like some of my friends did all of the above from scratch. And uh, it was a really tough climb. And, uh, but I, I did Nepalese languages because I found a mentor there who, uh, who was sane and very wonderful human being. He actually just died this fall and someone I've oh, been, I'm sorry. I uh, was, yeah. It, it, but I had a long, lifelong friendship with my sort of my mentor. What was his name? And this, uh, Theodore Riccardi Jr. Mm. Uh, he is an Indologist at Columbia. He, he spoke like 10 Asian languages and was a concert pianist. Wow. Um, a, a magnificent human being who also helped me get through and, mm-hmm. Uh, which every I always tell my students, you need to find a mentor because there will be times when you need him yeah. or her yeah. to get to him. And I think we all know that's that's true. Yeah. Anyway, Riccardi was very open to my other great interest, which was uh, anthropology. And and so I took courses with some of the greats at, who were at Columbia in those days. There was a guy named Marvin Harris, who was the chief uh, thinker in uh, cultural ecology. And I studied with a guy named Robert Murphy. <clears throat> and there are other people that I won't go, go any further, but I took the very last uh, field methods course uh, with Margaret Mead, who was uh, an amazing influence and uh, a, scare, wow. a scary person. What was, she, what was she like to study with oh, as a she was, student? She, you know, you had to talk your way into her course because she was famous at that point, very famous. And, you know, she carried a walking stick that she would bang on the floor for in, uh, emphasis. And so I had to go one-on-one in her office with Dr. Mead, as she was called. And um, and she's, I told her, you know, I already had a Fulbright and I was going to study Buddhism in the Himalayas. And she stopped me right there and she banged her stick on the floor and she said, young man, what is your hypothesis? What is your main hypothesis? <laughs> <laughs> and so I made up something on the spot and she let me in. And so we had, we had to go out into New York City and do, you know, little ethnographic projects. And it was tremendous preparation for the practicalities of field work, as well as uh, I think in, the reason I think like a social historian or a cultural historian is because of the anthropology, and so that's why. Wow. Uh, when I when I confront the philological biases in Buddhist studies, and the really poor progress we've made in getting past the first draft of the history of Buddhism, I think I'm really glad that I went through this long. I mean, I would. It took me ten years to finish my PhD, and I was in Nepal. For, hey, no shame in that. That's normal. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I I should ask you how many close to that you were. <laughs> But um, but I, I, I if I wanted to go another year, I could have gotten the second PhD in anthropology. But at the time, I just wanted to get the hell out of graduate school. You know, I didn't want to. Your whole life is on hold, and you know that was it was hard enough. But I imagine I had to mainly look in um, in departments of religion or area studies to get employment. And none of these were good places to be in the middle of the Reagan administration in the mid eighties. But, mm. but it has yeah. those two backgrounds of anthropology pushed me to be interested in social history and cultural history, to be interested in texts, but to be interested in the context of texts. 
And so, you know, uh, that's that's so I at, at Buddhism meetings, I always want to ask the textual people, uh, can you show me how often this text that you've told us and interpreted and translated so magnificently, how much it ever got out of the stacks yeah. Yeah. to the community and to influencing real people. Yeah. And, you know, that's, that's, you know, that's not part of the working definition of a theologically inclined scholar. Uh, and there's, I have no problem with, I don't challenge their legitimacy or anything else, but I think just living in that 5% bubble is not a good for having our students get back to the teaching side of this, understand a typical Buddhist, whether it's an immigrant down the street at the storefront, you know, a temple, or when they, if you travel the world, uh, you know, you when I asked people in uh, Kathmandu, who I studied uh, intensively, merchants in Kathmandu, you know, have you ever heard of Madhyamika philosophy? <laughs> and, uh, well, is that like Mahayana? <laughs> you know, these yeah. ideas and these philosophies yeah. have a real limited social context and I think are very limited historical causal yeah. effect. Yeah. Um, I love so I, of- I love how you articulated that we've done a poor job getting past the first draft of our history of Buddhism. I, That's I, I stolen that from Greg Chopin, by the way. Right. Okay. What, an old friend of mine. But yeah. so what do you think is what's what is the path forward then to get past or out of the poor job we're doing? Because in many ways, I mean uh, Buddhism one of the goals of this podcast is to also expose that Buddhism is being taught in all these really different venues, right. And really different kinds okay. of contexts and departments now, but uh, there's still some scholars among us who would believe that like the philological approach to Buddhist studies is the one period. Um, well, you need that. And it, it, I mean, texts and historical records are what we do the history of religions with. Mm-hmm. And what, what I'd like to see more of is including anthropological texts as well, not to turn every Buddhism course into the anthropology of Buddhism, but to provide some kind of um, uh, social historical imagination to what we see now. Admittedly, what I said a little while ago, that the modern period, Buddhism's had to be rebuilt almost everywhere. There's no, you know, nothing's ever changed, and this is ageless Buddhism anywhere. That's nonsense from the Buddhist doctrinal point of view, as well as from the modern history of uh, the world. But um, I would like to have some some kind of students to get an awareness in their first taste of, you know, what Buddhism in practice looks like. Um, you know, I, I I'd like to have a reader that would that would do this adequately, and I, you know, I. I'm about to go on sabbatical, and it may be my last paid sabbatical, so I'm trying to figure out how to spend this precious <laughs> lifespan that's not <laughs> unlimited right. on what to do. Right. Uh, I did have a proposal to do a series of at Oxford on Buddhism in practice, but uh, but I, I got a new editor, and I took too long to get it underway, and so now it's been tabled. Mm-hmm. No one wants to make big decisions at the moment. No, it's a bad time for big moves. <laughs> we all feel that. I, I would like to see that um, that possibility to have these short books about Buddhism in a particular place, yeah. looking at a particular 
particular sector, like, you know, what's it like to be in a Buddhist monastery? What's it really like? You know, and yeah. there are some interesting yeah. stories. And for who? For different people, right? There's also different people who come to a monastery Absolutely. for different reasons, right? Absolutely. And so I think, you know, what Chopin has done with opening up, you know, with the, this uh, Melissa Rastivad and Vinaya, to see that how diverse that monastic, mature monastic tradition was. And, and I think, you know, that's the way it developed everywhere. I mean, that different flavors and different manifestations, different national contexts that, you know, they, that where governments wanted more or lesser control over the Sangha. But um, that kind of imagination is not just going to come out of doing critical editions of texts. Right. Just not going to. Right. But we need both somehow, right? We need, yeah. We do. We do. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so, I don't know. I, I Chopin has had some health problems himself. And, you know, I, I got away from doing this project. But I wanted a reader that would include, you know, a reader on inscriptions. You know, if you construct Buddhism from inscriptions only and forget the text, which is, I, I say, me, could have just meant that they were in the stacks. And didn't have, didn't get any sunlight or use, but inscriptions have a different level of uh, reliability and practicality, although not without their own problems. No, no, they come. Sure. Yeah, I'm obsessed with inscriptions. Oh, yeah. Thank you. And that inscriptions is my is one of my that's my passion. I'm working on inscriptions. You would say completely different things about Buddhism yeah. from that. Yeah, you know, and some of the things in the text are not borne out in the inscriptions. You know, like monks and nuns not having. Uh, not being wealthy. Well, some of them were building huge monuments. Give me a break. Yeah. So I don't know. I, you know, there, there are lots of other serious things going on in the world besides doing chiropractic on Buddhist studies. But <laughs> uh, yeah. right. I, I don't see why we have to keep reproducing the first draft of history. Right. Uh, that's, that is, um, that is uh, a regretted uh, in my opinion, I think we should be doing better by now. I know. Or it feels a little like navel gazing, right? Like if we just keep spinning the same yarns, <laughs> even when we know, we actually know that there's a lot of uh, contravening facts now. Yeah. Well, you know, it, it, there there are interesting points on what's in and what's out of the introductory course. Uh, you know, and I, I have mixed feelings about sharing Tantra with uh, with undergraduates in their first course. Uh, for example, when I asked uh, the, the fine young scholar David Gray at Santa Clara to talk about how he teaches what his specialty is, he's he's the expert on the Chakra Sambara Tantra and many other things having to do with Tantric tradition, and how do you teach it? You know, And, you know, it, it turns out that it, it's not it, – I, I, I still teach Tantra, but I don't get into sexual yoga or any of that stuff. Uh, except mentioning that it is uh, one practice, but it looks to me like in scale and in, in, pra in practical terms over this many centuries that uh, this was mostly about visualization. So, but I don't feel like I should tell undergraduate, privileged undergraduate students what the typical householder in Nepal would not be given without an initiation, you know? <laughs> so it's a, that's, a, that's a bit coming from my own um working in a Mahayana Vajrayana community in which these boundaries to practice were taken very seriously. And, um, and I respected them myself. I did not try to, you know, break the code or, you know, do any of that thing when I was a researcher. So there, there are issues like that, but um, I, I think you need to establish a first foundation and then uh, later 
studies or classes can complexify that as, as needed. But I think religious literacy has to be at the forefront of what we're Right. About so what? Do, yeah. What do you want your students to get out of their out of your Buddhism classes? If if we're not um, needing to really rework too much, at least for our students' sake, this first draft of the history of yeah. Buddhism. What are the learning outcomes that you want your students to walk away with? Oh, the learning outcomes, <laughs> uh, or the big the big pictures. I, no, yeah. I know that's that's the that's the jargon of the day, and I I'm fine with that. I want them to be basically literate about the history of Buddhism in a, in a critical way. I will also often encourage them to think, you know, critically about Buddhism itself. I'm not trying to um, to give them a rosy view or a a negative view. You know, like you know, this is the heresy of Buddhism the way <laughs> probably was taught at Holy Cross a, a century ago. Uh, no, that's oh, not some it. places five years ago, but that's uh, no worries. Yeah, well, that may be true also. <laughs> um, I want them. I, what I tell them at the start of the course is that your job is to think through Buddhist doctrine, to think like a Buddhist as much as you can. Think about, and here's the big difference. I mean, you know, I, I try to subtly undermine their assumption at the start. For example, some of them may believe that all religions are saying the same thing. And I used to wait to, to, to stick a pin in that balloon. But <laughs> now I don't anymore. I just decide I'm just going to blow this thing up. It's got to go right now. But, you know, are they saying the same thing when uh, we talk about once one time around a worldview of the Abrahamic traditions versus samsara with many lifetimes? Is the logic of living a religious life the same? when you have to get it all right in this life or when you can, and you know, this gets to the successive approximation of Nirvana that scholars have talked about. Buddhists don't think that it's all or nothing right now here to do it. Right. Some, some do. And the tradition encourages people to get busy and don't be complacent. But some people know if you've got to farm a field and murder all those ants and, and worms every year, you know, you're making lots of bad karma and you got to, compensate it if you're a farmer, right? So you, you know it's not realistic that you're going to reach nirvana in this lifetime. It's just laughably it, it, impossible. impossible. So so I want, I, I guess I want them to see, first of all, that there are other ways of defining reality that uh, are uh, that are legitimate and have a logic of their own. And so thinking, and I'd say it usually takes about a month because some of the terminology is new, but you know we live in a karma booby. We live in a world of that's uh, dictated in part by karma, and people manage their karma, and that's a good Buddhist. And you know the question also comes up: what's what's a good Buddhist? And this is where you know sometimes you know they get the misimpression that you know only the monk in the cave, you know, doing the three year three month retreat is a you know is is a great Buddhist. I say, no, if you take refuge and practice as best you can, that's a good Buddhist. And it's just like saying, oh, only the Jesuits are good Christians or something like that, which hits home with them because, you know, we've had some very bad behavior from um, Catholic priests over recent years. So, you know, right. I, I want them to, um, to be able to think through the Buddhist worldview. And I want them to also start indirectly to think about how their own view 
the way they were, what they inherited from their parents from when, when they were kids and had no defense or couldn't defend themselves, to see how the world is put together in different legitimate ways. To me, that, that contribution to humanistic learning is really at the center of what, even, even more important than getting the details of the Eightfold Path and the Four Noble Truths, uh, this flexibility of mind, this ability to imagine other worlds that people can inhabit authentically, and spirituality that is, uh, that is very powerful. My students, I always tell them, I always have a meditation teacher come in. I never cross the line on being a guru. And you know, that, that's been a loss this semester. That's a loss right there because I haven't had anyone do a Zoom meditation session. I take them and we sit. Uh, I sit with them, but I don't teach them meditation. But what they'll always remember after they forget the details of the date of the Mahayana, the rise of the Mahayana tradition, is that meditation experience. And I get postcards from students who now have their own kids, who some of them may be even going to Holy Cross, who say, you know, that meditation, I've had to practice the rest of my life. And uh, up until now, and, and that, that, that I've done something like that. In, and so that, that kind of taste of spirituality that they're free to ignore or to follow mm -hmm. themselves is, uh, is very much a part of what the, at least the Jesuits that I, there aren't many Jesuits left, by the way, but the Jesuit culture of Holy Cross that they are very much in favor of. The Jesuits at Holy Cross are the Jesuits who say it's our duty to find God in all things, including other religions. So I've been supported in, and we have uh, mindfulness and Zen people come to Holy Cross all the time. In fact, we gave an honorary degree to the Zen Roshi Jesuit Robert Kennedy about four years ago, which was one of my crowning moments in the, at the College of the Holy Cross. So anyway, I want students to have an open mind and to, and to experience a, a taste of the, the thinking and of the spirituality of Buddhism. Yeah. I like, I, I appreciate also hearing you talk about the meditation experience in class, because I'm, I'm going to teach a course about meditation next term, about oh. Buddhist meditation. And yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm really vastly unqualified to do so in terms of practice. I'm not, I'm no great meditator nor a meditation teacher, but I do think there's value to exposing them to the experience of it. There is. And I hear good things about how some professors start their classes with five minutes of silent mindfulness. Mm -hmm. And that challenges my, my stand about not being the person because you can't bring someone in every class. Yeah. So yeah. I don't know. I think if the benefit is really there, maybe I should do an experiment and not yeah. be so so rigid with that. The there's other apps thing now I, too. There's all these apps, right? Yeah, that, that's, that's the, true. Kids can you can also just incentivize, like you know, download the app and make sure you do ten minutes. And well, you know, that's what I did this semester. I said, find something and do it. Yeah. At the time that my intro class usually does it. The other concern I have, by the way, at least it's not the concern. It's I think it's important to get beyond the, um, the just the vipassana uh, thing. Um, and I have people come and do the the um, the four immeasurables and do metta, loving kindness. And I say that, um, and so the person does vipassana for an hour and metta uh, uh, contemplation the other. Uh, and I said, you know, well, the, Jesus said, love your enemy. The Buddhists actually defined a practice on how to do that. 
and and that intrigues my my especially my Catholic students. Um, and so that's a very I don't know if you've ever done that, but it's it's really worth looking into where you visualize people and extend loving kindness from your yes, heart yes, yeah. from yourself, Howard. That's really a great thing. Yeah. And the other thing that I actually, I just have to confess, I've just been a little bit, I guess, uh, not quite, um, I, I guess I break my own rule. I, I was given an initiation by a Tibetan Lama that is designed to be shared without restriction on visualization of Avalokiteshvara. This is Lama Yeshe, by the way. Uh, the great uh, uh, Lama who practiced in the Kathmandu Valley. And um, I can send you what I send to them, but I, they have to memorize a visual form and then relate to it in a very simple meditation that turns out not to be so simple after right. all. Oh, cool. So, That's so fascinating. Well, I'll send that to you. I'll send that yeah, to yeah, you. Yeah, I'd, love, I'd love to know. And yeah, Meta loving kindness meditation. I mean, it's, it, it, um, that's one of the first things that I was asked to do as an undergrad in a in a Buddhism course, and I feel like also now it re- it would it resonates so much with students because of this idea of like interdependence and circles of concern, and circles of you know like where your responsibility lies. I think especially in this COVID reality where you know people are rapidly, at least hopefully, recognizing how responsible they are even to, even to unseen act actors in the world. Um, yes, it could be really powerful. well. I think in these times, um, they um, these practices are are really a, a, a real bulwark of sanity. Uh, just to have this kind of practice, um, so but I think it's a bulwark. I mean, the insanity around us is <laughs> is ongoing. It's not going to go away, and I think it's a, a life tool for many students. And yeah, yeah. So I have a final question for you about which may be a bit of a, you know, imaginative exercise, but how do you think Buddhism is going to be taught post-COVID, post-Trump, post whatever, whatever all the other messes we're in? Um, where do you think the future lies for um, how we how we can or should be growing in our teaching of Buddhism? Hmm. Well, that's. I didn't see that coming. Uh, maybe you <laughs> told me, but I forgot. Um, I, I, I really don't. I'm not sure that I'm, I'm going to see Buddhism taught differently. I wish it were. I wish some of the things that I have shared with you today would be so. Um, what I am concerned with is that, um, and it, one of my f- friends and students at the uh, University of Vermont, uh, Kevin Trainer, uh, the provost of that university, just deleted the religion department. So I'm yeah. starting to yeah. wonder about, as other people are in these apocalyptic times, about the economic impact on higher education and how some administrators are going to contract to be, you know, occupational-minded courses with few majors. And neglect the core of the the liberal arts. Um, so that that's been on my mind because that's been all over the Buddhist listservs and uh, trying to resist these uh, bureaucrats making these kinds of decisions. Um, so that's not exactly an uplifting last thought. I know it's <laughs> well. No, it's interesting. What? Yeah. What do you? What would you hope for it? Like after your retirement for 
when when you retire, you don't have to worry about the teaching so much anymore and you get to publish the stuff you want. What would you hope for the young'uns coming up getting to teach well, intro to Buddhism? I, I would like to see, um, and these are the most transformative things that happen in college. I would like to see uh, connections with Asia, with students going to study abroad more. And I'd like to see the connections with Asians now present in the United States or in North America, who uh, can, will connect with college students as well. Uh, there's nothing like meeting people and to see the humanity in being a Buddhist than getting to know Buddhists. And, you know, it's all in our heads, even on the screen when we show movies, it's still a little bit distancing. But to go to a, a temple and to meet people and and to go to Asia and see how the logic of local life is sort of entwined with the practice of Buddhism is a very powerful, transformative educational experience. So to me, that reality of human contact is, is something that we should anticipate um, increasing. Buddhists are now everywhere in urban centers across the globe. Tibetan Buddhist centers have, have, have multiplied incredibly. But other groups as well, from Vietnam to Laotians to Cambodians, Thais, there are temples all over, and there are people all over who are still practicing Buddhism. And I wish uh, our students could bridge the gap uh, to, make, uh, to connect them to America through their interest and respect for them. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. That's lovely. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us today. It was my pleasure, and your questions made it a true delight. Oh, thank you. It was, it was a real honor to speak with you, and I hope that we get to continue the conversation in the future. I would very much look forward to that. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> thank you for listening to The Conversation with Todd. You can find more information about Todd's research and publications on his profile page. We'll post a link in the show notes. Remember, show notes and transcripts are available on our website at teachingbuddhism.net. And if you have enjoyed this, we would really love to hear from you. Please let us know over social media or email. And remember, you can subscribe to this podcast through Apple or Stitcher or wherever you get your podcasts. A very special thanks to Dr. Betsy Moss, my partner in crime, for recording, editing, and producing this podcast. This podcast was produced by the Robert H. N. Ho Family Foundation Center for Buddhist Studies at the University of Toronto. Thanks for listening and be well.